We are starting um, Wednesday equipping night, so we're still going to have our healing rooms the first Wednesday night of every month, and I want to highly encourage all of you to show up for healing rooms. Um, we want to pray for people, uh, but you can observe that, you can be a part of that, but I also want enough folks showing up that we can send some uh, evangelism teams out on Wednesday nights to go treasure hunting, go find God's treasure follow his clues, words of knowledge, and see people get healed and lead people to the Lord. Um, I'm going to be leading some of those teams on Wednesday nights as long as we have enough people showing up. Um, so that is my heart that we as a family would be on a healing mission to restore our city. Every week I get phone calls from out of state. I even got one out of country um, last week. For people seeing our healing rooms on our website and saying, will you please pray for me? People are hungry and desperate, and I just believe it's one of those things. If we build it, they will come, right? If we show ourselves faithful to the Lord, He's going to send more people to us. So that's my heart. If you are not a part of a Wednesday night home group, I want you to consider strongly coming to our Wednesday night equipping nights. Um, if you bring your kids here for youth or... Um, for, for children's class on Wednesday nights, um, I want to encourage you to come here as well so we can get more equipped as a family of God. There is a revival coming. There is a harvest coming. Some more shaking is coming upon the earth. Uh, you may have heard some rumblings of it, and we want to be prepared to bring in that harvest, and we need to be spiritually equipped to do deliverance, uh, healing of the soul, help people get past the woundings of their past and bring them into freedom. We need to know how to do that. So we're going to learn some of that stuff on Wednesday nights. Um, there are some statements. I'm just going to share some statements uh, from Jesus, and I, I just pulled them out of longer sentences. But we're so used to hearing certain things. We've lost their shock value, and they're just our ears are used to it but we lose the impact of what Jesus is actually saying. So here's a couple of them. Jesus said, the Father loves me. The Father loves me. He also said, the Father knows me, and I know the Father. He also said, I love the Father, and I want the world to know, to see that I love the Father. Jesus also said, I abide in the Father's love. I abide in His love. All of those are pretty radical statements. Now, we know Scripture says God is love. Paul, the apostle, also talks about the Spirit being love and the love of the Spirit. So we talk about the love of the Father and the love that Jesus has for the Father and the love that the Father has for Jesus and the love that the Spirit has for both of them. And it's a, it's a radical thing to a monotheistic culture to say that. Uh, the early church focused much on the eternal Trinitarian nature of God. The eternal Trinitarian nature of God. Their theology began with a meditation on that intense, other-centered love that was shared between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Looking back after the life of Jesus, 
they really had to sit and go, what does this all mean? And how in the world is there such an intense love between the Son and the Father and the Spirit is there? And we get glimpses in the Old Testament of the Spirit of God. And then this man who, who is the angel of the Lord, but he's also the Lord. And we don't see the Trinity super clearly, but you, we get glimpses of it. And the fact that there's an intense love that always has been between them, the early church had to meditate on that and figure out what that actually meant and take these radical statements of Jesus and say, but what does that mean to us? What does that mean to me? One of the things that it means is that fellowship is not an attribute of God. It is part of His nature. If God was just alone, monotheistic, it's just him. Nothing's made. He hasn't created anything. He exists from eternity past. He's eternally alone. He's eternally alone. But if it's true that there is an eternal Trinitarian Godhead, there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they intensely love each other. They intensely submit to each other. They intensely are passionate about each other. They're intensely giving to each other. Then for all of eternity past, there isn't loneliness. There isn't boredom. There is eternal fellowship. So fellowship and relationship isn't a characteristic of God. It is part of who He is. It's part of who he is. It's part of his nature. God by nature is a relational being. Fellowship, sharing, self-giving, otherness, relationship, togetherness are not afterthoughts with God. They are primary to who he is. That's who he is. Relationship. Other-centered. That's who he always has been from eternity past. That matters. It actually matters a lot more than we realize. All these things are not something that he has on occasion. They are the essence of his being. He doesn't occasionally have fellowship. If you and I and no other spirit beings commune with him, he is always having communion with himself. He is always experiencing relationship and fellowship. Always. He is never without it. He's a relational being. All theology in the early church came out of this revelation. All of it. All theology. At the center of the universe is a beautiful heart and mind who is at his very essence a relational and loving being. For love to exist, there must be affection and an object of that affection. There must be affection and an object of that affection. So if God was monotheistic, love would not exist until someone else does as well. The first verses in the Bible open with God pushing back darkness and chaos. And the word Jesus, we know from the Gospels, was there speaking life into existence. And then we see the Spirit brooding over creation. The Trinity is there. God is there creating the radical revelation that Jesus made fully plain. He made fully clear is that God is three in one. And there has always been from eternity past self-sacrificing, mutually submissive, other-centered, unfettered, relational, passionate love flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit. 
We go, okay, wow, that's cool to think about. But what does that have to do with me? Everything, which we're going to find out. Everything. If God is alone from eternity past and there is no trinity, then the reason for God creating anything, especially other beings, is for his benefit. If he's all by himself, if he's all alone and he creates anything else, it's for his benefit. But if he is Trinitarian in nature, he has no loneliness, he has no relational void, he has no love void, he is self-sufficient for eternity and needs nothing. So anything that he creates out of his Trinitarian being is self-sacrificial and out of love, not a need to fill a void in himself. It's not for selfish motives. It's not for selfish motives. Every pagan religion in the world has the idea that there's a God or gods up there, and they create other beings to serve them or because they need them or because they don't want to be lonely or because of some need that they have in and of themselves. But because God is Trinitarian in nature and always has been, he has never been alone, he has never been bored, he has never been without fellowship, he has never been in need. He has never had a lack. Christianity is the only religion ever on earth that has a Trinitarian satisfied in himself, humble God, whose only motivation for creating anything or anyone is purely other-centered, an overflow of his self-existent love. That's pretty amazing. And part of the reason is because he is Trinitarian by nature. He is fellowship incarnate. He is relationship incarnate. You probably know someone like this, or maybe you were one of these people who had a baby because you felt empty inside or because you felt a void that you wanted to be filled, and so you had a baby. Now, all of us know, I don't know, maybe that was you, uh, but all of us know that that's a terrible reason to have a child, right? Is that a, If someone came to you and just said, I just feel empty inside, and I think a baby would really fill that void. Why is that a terrible idea? Why is that a terrible motivation to have a baby? Because it's selfish, right? And because it's selfish, because I'm, I'm get, giving something so that I can get something in return, this thing will always be an object of fear. There will always be dysfunction in that relationship because I need that thing to love me. And now there's a fear that maybe it won't love me. So we can never actually love it perfectly because we're afraid that they won't love us back appropriately. So creating another being to fill a void in ourselves is dysfunctional and the relationship can never ever be functional. Now we know that in human terms, but we don't often equate that to God. We don't often equate that to God, but the early church fathers meditated on that, and they thought about that. And they said, ha God has never been alone. He's never had a need. He's never been without 
fellowship and love and community and communion. So whenever you and I were created, it was completely for unselfish reasons. And he can love us completely unselfishly and in an extremely healthy way, a perfectly healthy way. That's amazing in and of itself to think about. We understand this about human relationships. However, we've lost our Trinitarian view of God's love within himself. And that's the reason that Jesus came, died, was, rose, was to bring us into that love that always was and always will be within God himself. And this is what we miss. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I love that book, The Shack, in the movie The Shack. Right? It was so challenging to religion. But what we get a beautiful glimpse of is mutual love, mutual affection, mutual submission, right? unity, oneness within this Trinitarian God. It, it's, just, it's a beautiful thing. It's something that we don't, we don't really see, we don't really think about. And we have actually divorced our theology and we've divorced the reason Jesus came from the fact that God wanted us to participate in that love that they have within themselves. Perfect love. Unselfish love. Healthy. Passionate. That love, that intense love that God that exists within the Trinity. God wanted us included in that. Fully included in that. It's radical. It's radical. God is not self-centered and bored or empty or lonely. He's satisfied within himself. God is inviting us into the life that Trinitarian love always has been the love that flows between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that community, that relationship. This changes the meaning and the motivation behind many, many scriptures. Here's one, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. This is eternal life, that they know you and or the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. You can say, well, I know God. You know, I, I, I mean, I know lots of stuff about him, and I pray, and I know him, like kind of, mostly, a little bit. If we really knew him, experiential knowledge, if we really experience in the fullness that love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we would actually be like Jesus. We would be like Jesus. We wouldn't be afraid. We would be at peace. We would have fullness of joy. We would be able to give sacrificially. We would be willing to sacrifice and not have a problem. We would be Christ-like. And to the level that we aren't Christ-like is the level that we are ignorant or lacking that experience of the love that God is inviting us, has inviting us, has a made a way for us to be a part of. 
Western theology divorced itself from the root and foundation being Trinitarian love within God Himself. It's interesting. I've been reading a lot more of the early church fathers. I've been reading a lot more theology of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and, you know, re-looking at some things. And our theology has changed, especially since the Reformation, a lot. Some great things came from the Reformation, but some terrible things came from the Reformation as well. And we still have not recovered. We still have not recovered. Western theology divorced itself from the root and foundation being Trinitarian love that existed within God Himself. That was the foundation of all theology. It was supplanted with focusing on the sovereignty and holiness of God. Holiness should begin with the Trinity. Holiness is a picture of the beauty, fellowship, and love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But what we have changed God's holiness to mean something like, uh, something akin to He is so unapproachable because He's so clean, and relatively speaking, everything and everyone else is dirty compared to Him. Do you feel invited? And that kind of holiness, do you feel invited? We've, we've tweaked and changed and put our focus on the wrong thing, and we've divorced so many of our concepts of God and salvation and redemption and even scriptures. We've have pulled them out of the context of the fact that God is love. And that we were invited into that perfect love. We were invited into that fellowship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have with each other. The holiness of God was detached from the Trinity and attached to the Roman penal system. Moral perfection. Legal rightness. That became the controlling idea in our approach to God. It can be legally right and relationally and motivationally wrong. Here's a couple of scriptures. I'll say it again. We can be legally right and relationally and motivationally wrong. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Tithing is things that you do. Justice and mercy and faithfulness is character, heart issues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. We can be legally perfect and motivationally and morally absolutely wrong. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woo! <laughs> wow. The primary view of atonement in the early church was something called Christus Victor. I'm not going to talk about that today, but you can look it up. That was the primary view of why Jesus came and died and rose again. They called it Christus Victor, Christ the victorious one. But now, after the Reformation, we have changed it to penal substitution. Meaning Jesus had to come because God had to have wrath. God had to take out punishment on somebody. And because he loves you, he's not going to take it out on you, but he's going to take it out on Jesus instead. 
That is not what the early church fathers believed. And personally, I think it's borderline heresy. Because what it does is it actually creates two different beings with two different hearts, two different wills, and two different motives. That's what it creates. A father who's angry, he must have blood one way or the other to have peace within himself. For his wrath to be satisfied, he must have blood. And then a son who says, no, Father, I don't want you to punish them. Punish me instead. Take it out on me instead. And that has been the predominant view of why Jesus died. And it is not at all, not even close to what the early church believed about why Jesus came. We'll have to have another discussion about the wrath of God. It's a real thing. We'll have to have another discussion about this. But Jesus didn't come to make peace between, to reconcile God to God, Father to Son. Jesus came to reconcile the world to God, to reconcile the world into that love relationship that always existed. What ends up happening with a penal substitution view of atonement is we end up hiding uh, from the Father behind the blood of Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not that Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Or, yeah, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not that Jesus came to reconcile the Father and the Son together. There were two major heresies that the early church faced. One of them was Gnosticism, which believed that spirit is holy, and anything physical is absolutely corrupt and cannot be redeemed. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And there's lots of ramifications to that. That your, your body doesn't affect your spirit, and your spirit is holy and right, and what happens in your body can't affect that. And the body, everything physical is absolutely corrupt, cannot be redeemed. Okay, so Gnosticism. So they said, therefore, if that is true, Jesus could not have come in flesh and blood because flesh and blood is corrupt. He only came in spirit, and he looked like he was flesh and blood. You could touch him like he was flesh and blood, but he wasn't really flesh and blood because flesh and blood is corrupt. That's what the Gnostics taught. The other major heresy that the early church had to face was called Arianism. From a guy named Arius. And it's where the Jehovah's Witnesses, I having been raised as one, really understand this. It's where Jehovah's Witnesses get their doctrine. It's one of the earliest heresies that existed in the church. And it was that Jesus was a created being. The Father created Jesus. And then Jesus and the Father co-reigned together. And then they both together created the earth. So Jesus existed before the earth existed, but he's a created being, therefore he is not fully God. So here's the problem. Some of us may think, okay, well, uh, yeah, that's kind of a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, not really that big of a deal, you know. Why is it a big deal? It comes back to the Trinitarian God and His love that exists within Himself and God inviting us into that love and redemption. So you have Arianism 
Jesus isn't fully God, and you have Gnosticism, Jesus wasn't fully flesh. He wasn't fully man. Two sides of the opposite coin. Jesus could not have been fully God, and Jesus could not have been fully man. There's huge ramifications for that. Let's pretend that Jesus was not fully God, right? Yet he was still able to live a sinless life. He still existed before the world existed, and he lived a sinful life. He died on a cross for us. That may mean that we are forgiven by God, yet we're just tolerated. Man is forgiven but not included into real union and real oneness with God. We may have a relationship with God like you have with a nice neighbor, but you are not united as one. There would be no human in the Godhead. This is what happened at the incarnation of Jesus. When, When God took on flesh, all the angels and all the spirit beings were wondering what in the world was going to happen. And when Jesus was born, they said, there is man inside the Godhead. There is a man inside the Godhead now. And there is God inside a man. When Jesus was born, the Spirit didn't abandon him. The Father didn't abandon him. He still had that same relationship he had with the Father and with the Spirit. That love still existed. And Jesus talked a lot about the Father loving him and him loving the Father. And that he knew the Father. And the Father knew him. And nobody else knew the Father. Only he knew the Father. He was the only one that ever seen the Father. And he's trying to describe, I see the Father and the Spirit. And I know them. And we are one. And I'm trying to reveal and explain him to you. But the amazing thing about the incarnation, if it's really true that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man, the moment that happened, even before Jesus died on the cross, even before he was raised from the dead, even before he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father, man was included into the Godhead at the incarnation. Man was included into that relationship that always existed from eternity past. Man was included. That's amazing. Whoa. Does that mean I am included in the fullness of all of God's love? That I'm accepted into the fullness of all of God's love? Yes, yes, if Jesus isn't fully God, then there is no God in man. And if Jesus isn't fully man, there's no man in the Godhood. This is why this was such a big deal, such a big deal. The nature of who Jesus Christ was. But somehow we've divorced all that from from the the relationship, from being included in the Trinity. We just think about Christmas and the incarnation and God becoming flesh as like, wow, it's all about God's humility. Which it is. But that's all it's about is 
Wow, God is so humble. That's amazing. But if we think of that in terms of, whoa, God just swallowed up humanity. He became a man. He took it into himself. Now mankind is included in the Godhead. The incarnation is a big, 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 life-changing, history-changing moment. And so was the cross. And so was the resurrection. And so was the ascension. But that's when it started, at the incarnation. It's a big deal. If Jesus wasn't God, the cross would have been as effective as the Passover lamb was for the Jews. When you, at Passover, you sacrifice the lamb, you get forgiven. As long as you have a pure, spotless lamb. If Jesus wasn't God, the cross would have just been that effective. Temporary forgiveness. And actually, for a lot of us, a lot of the Western world, that's what we think. Jesus died so that I could be forgiven. Now I got to prove myself and... Now I got to do these things and, you know, try to get close to God. But wow, is it radically different if God says, no, I don't need you to be a part of any of this. I'm going to do it for you. I am going to take on humanity. I am going to take on flesh. And I am going to bring mankind into the Godhood all by myself. And you're invited to just believe it. You're invited to believe that it's true, that you're included, that you're in Christ. It it takes away all your ability to fail out of it. Either it's true and Jesus did it, or he didn't do it and it's not true. And you have work to do, but God does not leave us with any other option. I'm reading Romans with my boys, and there's, I'll I'll have to find it sometime, but there's a a scripture in there that says, and so that it would be guaranteed, it is by faith. The promise is by faith, so that it would be guaranteed. There you go. Thank you. If it was up to us, there's no guarantee. But if it's up to Jesus, he already did it, and all we have to do is believe, yeah, he did it. It's guaranteed. The promise is guaranteed to you. If Jesus was only spirit and not flesh, as a Gnostic would say, then man is not included in the Trinity. We are still outside. God would love us from afar. This idea... That Jesus was not God and this idea that Jesus was not fully man was absolutely anathema to the early church. It completely undid everything Jesus was incarnated, buried, rose, and ascended for. Let me read you a couple scriptures. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Here's another one from John, 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
So what is the Antichrist up to? What deception is the Antichrist up to? That Jesus wasn't fully God and that Jesus wasn't fully man. And he didn't reconcile you to the Trinity. Maybe he forgave you, but you're not there. You're not included. That's the lie. That's part of the lie. John said, if you don't believe this, you're believing an antichrist lie. Everything for the early church hung on the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because the entire mission was, I'm going to bring mankind into the fellowship that me and the Father and the Spirit have together. That's radical, radical stuff. That will change the way you look at so many scriptures. It's changing some of the way that I look at some scriptures. Right now, this very instant, this very instant, there is a man sitting as a member of the Trinity. There's a man, flesh and blood man, with holes in his hands that one day we're going to be able to touch. And what does Scripture say where we are? We are seated in Him. When the Father and the Spirit look at the Son, and that flow of affection goes out towards Him, it can't not come towards me because I am in Him. This is even more amazing, I think. When Jesus, with those eyes of fire, looks at the Father and looks at the Spirit with love and longing, He's looking through my eyes too because I'm in Christ. Religion will always start somewhere else. Religion will always start somewhere else. But true biblical Christianity will always start there. God wanted us to experience the community, the fellowship, the freedom, the love that they have always had from eternity past. And the only way to get us in was not through our effort and not through our understanding and not through our theology. We cannot figure it out. God did it for us. My temptation is to read 20 million scriptures to you to prove that this is true. But there are too many, too many who are seated in Christ in heavenly places. It has nothing to do with your ability. I'm going to read one scripture, then we're going to be finished. This is Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. Just listen with the ears 
this context of Trinitarian love and God wanting us inside that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him, meaning raised us up with God, seated us with God the Father in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Let me read this one more part one more time. So that in the coming ages, in the coming eons, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Does God love you? Absolutely with everything in him. Can you fail to be in Christ? Only if you don't believe. Only if you don't believe. We get into a bunch of sins because we don't believe this. But if we believe this and we have communion and experience that love, our sin just starts falling away. Why would we need anything else? Why would I need anything else? That's how Jesus lived a perfect life. It wasn't because he was so steel-willed, had so much self-control that he could say no to stuff he really wanted to do. It's because he had this fellowship and this love that couldn't be broken. And anything compared to that was dung, as Paul said. Everything else is dung compared to knowing God. It's just a load of not good stuff. Jesus put you there. He put you there. This is the amazing thing about the world. The people in Walmart, the people at the restaurant you're going to go encounter today, that's God's heart for them too. And he actually put them in there. They don't know it yet. You know what's amazing? To do a scripture survey on how many apostles preached about hell. They talked about it, but there's not one sermon where they fear-mongered anyone into the kingdom. Not once. It was always the riches. It was always the kindness. It was always the love. It was always you've become a slave to sin and God wants to set you free. And he has done it for you. You just have to change your mind and believe. Fruit will follow. He'll put his spirit in you. God will live in you and you'll live in God. You can't fail. 
The promise is guaranteed because it's by faith, not by works. All religion wants to go the other way. Can we stand up? I hope you're properly challenged and encouraged. Do me a favor. Prove me wrong. I'm serious. Prove me wrong. You can pull individual scriptures and go, well, what about this? True. Prove me wrong, and you'll end up finding that it's right. It's like trying to get someone to prove the theory of evolution. Prove it. Every time someone tries to prove it, they become a believer in God. Every time. If they won't give up, they become a believer in God. Because they can't not. This is the gospel. You are included in the Trinitarian love that has always been. When we get that, everything will change. Everything will change. Lord, we just thank you so much. This truth is wild. It's crazy. It goes against our whole world. It goes against all religion. But Lord, deep in our knower, we know it's true. We know it's true. Lord, we ask that you would help us to fully comprehend the breadth and the height and the width and the depth of your love for us. That, Lord, next time we pray, next time we open Scripture, next time we do anything, Lord, let us start from the place of being included. Let us start in the place of being in Christ. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for such an amazing, wonderful, incredible gift. Let us experience the love that exists between the Godhead. In Jesus' name, amen.